Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm gonna talk a little first, if that's okay. Um, and I'll try not to. Is there some way I can uh, temporarily block that thing? Or I know some of them need to warm up. So yeah, okay. All right, thank you. All right, thanks guys. Thanks for your time. Please pray for me that I'll be able to be first of all, you know, used of the Lord primarily forced and first and foremost that I'll be relaxed and I'll be able to share with you in an effective, concise way what matters because there's a lot of meat on the bone and I've been praying all day, especially prior to today, but certainly all day for wisdom to share what is edifying and to leave out what is not, to have the Lord really uh, inspire me where I need to be inspired and restrain me where I need to be restrained. Uh, so to begin my testimony, and I'll just give you kind of a brief outline, what I plan to do is to share with you my testimony. And then I want to tell you how that testimony culminates in the NOAA project, which is an orphan care and widow assistance program to community development and discipleship as well in Malawi, East Africa, which was based off of James 127, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father which is not only helping orphans and the widows, but keeping oneself unspotted from the world, being pure before the Lord. And, uh, and I want to show you a quick video on that project, which will, it was created in 2009, at which time we were a very big organization and we were doing a lot of things. And then the Lord in His sovereignty allowed three very key things happen, which changed everything and turned it all on its head. And then after the video, I will explain to you where we are now and where we're praying to go. Um, and and how you may or may not be able to assist for primarily prayer. Uh, some of you, I don't know, may have some skill that you'd like to volunteer, and Greg specifically asked me to, uh, to put that need before you. Um, and it's a very interesting story how it's all developed, and I, I know several of you quite well, and I know that you already do or will appreciate how that story, story has developed, not only for me personally, but around the project. Because it's very much an evolution of faith, just as I've heard many of you talk about going through. And uh, we're all going through. Um, so to begin, kind of at the beginning, I was born in Oklahoma. My father was a uh, truck driver, trucking business guy. He also ran auto repair businesses. And he was born and bred in North Carolina. He's much older than my mother. My grandparents were literal sharecroppers, just like you might have learned about in school. To the day they died in the early 80s, they had no indoor plumbing. Uh, we went and visited them and visited the outhouse. My father was really one of those people who got one pair of shoes a year, and he got very basic things for Christmas. And he was taken out of school in the eighth grade to work the farm, and that was the end of his education. So he is one of the old, deep south, hardcore guys. And, and I don't mean to uh, say that in a glorious way. Um, there's a lot that comes with that. And then my ancestors before him were well known to be um, uh, really, uh, how can I characterize that? Um, they were tough customers, and, and it wasn't always a positive thing. And that trickled down through the family, and you'll hear a little more about that. My mother, he met in Baltimore, Maryland, and she was a city girl. And, uh, and he had a bet that he could not get a date with this young, pretty city girl, which he won the bet. And they ended up getting married, and he took her to Oklahoma and uh, homesteaded and, 
and I was produced, and uh, shortly after that, they came back to North Carolina, and he put her in a home with his parents. We were all living together in one big old house, and, uh, and she didn't know how to cook anything, much less what we call cat head biscuits or three-finger biscuits. Do you know what those are? They're as big as a cat head. You throw the dough on the pan and hit it with the back of your hand, and it's about that big around, and you can still see the three fingerprints. So she didn't know how to cook anything, much less those. So there was friction right off the bat. And, uh, but then his MO was to bring her home, introduce her to his parents with a child in tow, and then go back on the road driving to California and back. And so there she was left in the midst of this strange land, a different culture. And needless to say, that didn't work out too well. And by the time I was uh, between three and four years old, they split, and we went back to Maryland. So fast forward to several years later, I'm about nine years old, and I'm out on the playground one day playing with my friends, and my mother drives up with a fully loaded car and says, we're going to North Carolina. And I'm almost nine now. I'm okay, what? I get in the car, and we literally drove from the playground to North Carolina at which time I was reintroduced to my father, and she informed me that she was going to remarry my father. At first, I was so excited about this because my dad's larger-than-life, kind of John Wayne-type character, just the booming voice, commanding presence. My dad! You know, but I very quickly figured out you know, that all was not well in Wonderland, and uh, my dad was a very stern disciplinarian. Um, he had been disciplined in a harsh way. He had led a very harsh life. And I want all of you to know my father's still living. Um, I love my father. I try to minister to my father. I respect him. I honor him. Uh, uh, but at the same time, he in his woundedness because of his childhood did not know how to parent the way that we understand parenting. And there are things that my father did that I will share a little of, of it with you that were extremely harsh and cruel. But in his eyes, that's the way life was, hard and poor in the country. And he, he was not trying to maliciously wound me. He was trying to do what he was thought right, what he thought was right for a man to do with a young man who needed to learn what life was all about. He did not understand how this was impacting me. He didn't have a clue. And um, so reintroduced to dad, nine years old, um, immediately got a harsh introduction to what this life was going to be like. And one of those pictures... Uh, one of the things I'll share with you is there was a book that came out last year about Beacon Press. It was written by a journalist with the Boston Globe, formerly with the Miami Herald. And that book uh, chronicles part of my life story and the ministry in Africa. And not just for the sake of talking about those two things, but for the sake of talking about what are best practices in humanitarian aid worldwide. And uh, last summer I was invited to speak on an expert panel in Washington, D.C., uh, there were four panelists. There was myself, the head of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the head of UNAIDS, and the head of the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric, Pediatric AIDS Foundation. And we had an audience of several hundred people, and uh, they first asked us to speak on the topic of AIDS and vulnerable and orphaned children, and then to talk on the topic of what the faith-based community does well and what this government sector does well and how we can learn from one another. Um, so... In the book, this story is told, and, and so I don't hesitate to share it publicly. Again, with the caveat, I want you to know that I respect my father. I love my father. I understand why he did what he did, even though he still doesn't understand all of the ramifications of it. 
So I'd been reintroduced to my father for about a year. We were living on a farm out in the country, and my father brings home a Jersey bull calf. It was not much larger, larger than a dog at the time. And he says, this is your responsibility, boy. I've got to feed it. My friends used to call me Patches. Any of you ever, some of you are too young, ever heard that song, Patches? It's about a poor boy who had, his friends made fun of him because every morning before he went to school, he had to chop wood, feed the chickens. I was that guy. I had to clean out the stalls. I had to feed the animals. I was responsible for everything. I was the only guy, and he was on the road. And so he brought me this Jersey bull. This is your responsibility. You're going to raise it. You're going to feed it. And for a year, that's what I did. And I could call this bull like a dog. And he would come, and he would let me ride him. And so a year later, he's a bull. He's a real bull. And I'm proud of this thing. This is like the first real pet I've ever had. And you have to forgive me. I may get emotional at a few points in this dialogue. But uh, So one day my father comes over with my grandfather and says, Boy, go get that bull. And I'm thinking, Yeah, man, I'm so proud. I'm going to go get my bull and bring it up to my grandfather. I go out and call my bull. He comes running across the field, comes running up to me. Hook him up and bring him to the barn. I take him down to the barn. They made me stand over here. They promptly strung him up between the pillars of the barn and shot him in the head and forced me to stand there and watch and then forced me to participate while they butchered him. And in their eyes, that's life in the country. In my eyes, you just murdered the only real pet I've ever had. You didn't warn me. You didn't prepare me. I'm nine years old. I had no concept. And that was when I really began to hate my father. I began to hate my father. I refused to eat any of the meat. And now my father was the kind of guy, if, if there was something put on the table and you didn't like it, you ate it anyway. Period. There was no arguing. There was no debating. There was no conversation. It was you do what I say or else. And or else was serious business. So that just gives you a picture. Um, I had a brother from another marriage that lived in Maryland as well. He came down to visit. He was my older brother. I looked up to this guy. He was just amazing to me. And I was on the tumbling gymnastics team at school. And we had a, a meet that night, and he was going to drive me to the meet. And so we all excited, got in the car, drove to the tumbling meet. I forgot part of my uniform. He says, don't worry, little brother. Man, we'll, we'll be back home in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. No problem. He drives me home. We walk in. My dad asks what's going on. He got furious over the fact that I had not prepared myself, and he told my brother, you'll go back without him, and he'll sit here for the rest of the night. So... Those are just a few snapshots of what life was like, and this developed in me this seething um, attitude toward authority. And that followed me my whole life, and you'll understand how important that is very shortly. One of the things my father always said to me, along with, if you ever go to school and get beaten up when you get home, I'll teach you another lesson, um, was that if you're ever going to be a real man, you join the military. And he was a veteran. He, was a, he didn't see combat, but he was on a ship during World War II. But he said, the military will make a man out of you, boy. If anything else will make a man out of you, that will. And all I wanted in my eyes was to be a man in my father's eyes. So as soon as I was old enough, for those reasons and many more, I was one of those boys that always wanted to be a soldier. I spent most of my time alone in the woods with a gun throughout my childhood. I was alone in the woods with a gun. And uh, so as soon as I was old enough, I joined the military to get away from everything, including uh, an extremely difficult marriage that happened way too young because I didn't have any counsel to turn to. 
Um, I take full responsibility for my part, but before I actually tried to clean it up with a marriage, I went and asked for help and, and didn't get any. So I should rewind a bit at that point and say, I didn't grow up in a believing home, if that wasn't already obvious. When I was 14 years old, one of those buses, I don't know if any of you are familiar that, with that, but in the country here in the South, it's a typical thing that these Southern Baptist Bible Belt churches will get an old school bus, and they'll start going around the neighborhood and picking up whoever can't go, who will just get on the bus and go. And they came to our house, and my mom was there with us kids, and yeah, okay, so we all went. So 14 years old, I hear my first real presentation of the gospel. And what I heard was the traditional pitch. You know, here's Jesus and the Bible and all the right things and blessing and all that good stuff. And here's Satan and hell and sin. Uh, which one do you want? Oh, <laughs> I'll take, certainly I'll take Jesus. You know, that's a no-brainer. And so then I was briefly discipled, if you will call it that. And then I was led through the sinner's prayer. And I was told, you're now permanently saved forever. Jesus is going to be your friend. Things are going to get better. Wait and see. Things didn't get better. One of the first things that happened was my mother got the counsel, you have to obey your husband no matter what. And so she went almost overnight from at least trying to intervene and, and uh, negotiate on the children's behalf to just being completely hands-off and thinking that that was the right thing to do. And so now I'm not only got an issue with him, I got an issue with her for not taking up for me anymore. And I got an issue with the people who are teaching her that. And so I'm starting to realize you know, th things aren't getting any better. And now this new community that we were a part of, we started to make friends and fellowship with people and I started to see a lot of the same things I had seen my whole life. And I began thinking, you people aren't any different. As a matter of fact, if anything, you're worse because you, you say you believe this and you say that this is going to change your life and yet your life's not changed. My life's not changed. And I was at that point when I joined the military and I really had issues with the whole idea of religion. I had issues with authority. So I signed up for the military. I'd been told, you know, most of my life, you're, you're dumb, you're, you know, you idiot, you, you know, the typical putting the child down because the child makes childish mistakes. Um, so I took the entrance exams for the military, and I wanted to sign up for special forces. And that's what I signed up for, and I took the entrance exams. A few weeks later, I got a call. They said, you need to come down here and see us. So I went down to the office thinking, oh, no, I'm in trouble again, same old deal. They said, no, no we've got your exam scores back and we want you to reconsider this. Like, what? They said, no, we want you to think about a different career path in the military because of your scores. We want you to think about satellite maintenance, nuclear weapons, coding, things like that. I'm blown away. I didn't even know what to think. And they told me your scores were so high that we want you to consider one of these other career choices. So we talked about it and I chose to go into nuclear weapons. And that's what I went into. And that was my job in the military, to work on actual nuclear warheads. So I went into the military, and at first it was the traditional military, shoot them up. You know, I went to basic training at Fort Knox, and back then, in 1980, you didn't see a female unless you got hurt and went to the hospital. It, it, was, 
If you had a, and they told you right up front on the firing line, if you have a weapon in your hand and you turn around and point it anywhere except downrange, before you can think about it, I'm going to have the weapon in my hand and you're going to be on the ground. I will teach you a lesson about pointing that weapon anywhere it doesn't belong. They didn't have any qualms about hitting you back then. It's all different now. So they punished us, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I did well at it. I'm like, yeah, you know, as long as you treat me right, give me clear goals, and reward me when I hit them, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And I excelled in the military. Well, then it came time to actually be trained for my job. And I went to AIT. A lot of you are familiar with that term. I went to school to learn about nuclear weapons, and I excelled there. And then they came back to me and said, we want to take you another step. We want you to go into R&D. And so I ended up with a, a higher than a top secret clearance as CNW, Sinwitty, Critical Nuclear Weapons Design Information. And I went into that field. But then, very quickly, it was like, it was like not even being in the Army anymore. We had civilian security guards. We lived in off-post housing. Because of Russian satellite surveillance, we wore civilian clothes most of the time. It, it, was, it was a whole different world now. But I very quickly saw that my commanding officers were not the kind of guys that I had learned to look up to in the first stages of the military. And I very quickly found the same kind of do what I say, not what I do, corrupt authority. And then as I transitioned into being in Europe and working on actual weapon systems in Europe, I began to realize that a lot of what people were being told was a lie a lot of what I was being asked to do was not something that was supposed to be happening. And I have to be very careful there. But suffice it to say, I very quickly became disillusioned with the whole military picture. Now, along with that, all the way along, things kept happening. It was like every time I tried to do the right thing and work hard and do the right thing, just the most unimaginable thing would come along and just hit me right in the eye, right between the eyes. And I'm like, what? What is this? I, I've always tried to do good. I've always tried to be a good boy. Now, looking back, I realized I was making a mess all along because I didn't know how to live. Nobody taught me how to make good choices. But I wasn't a bad guy. I was trying to please. I wanted to please. And I'd been trying to please and trying to please. And it was one bad thing after the other. And there's so much more to the story. But I really want to be focused. One of the things that happened um, in the marriage I mentioned uh, I started out with this faith, this new faith in Jesus at 14, and a year or so later I met a girl and thought I was in love, and I wanted to save myself. And so months and months we were dating and hanging out, and I'm like, I'm going to save myself, I'm going to save myself. Well, we broke up at one point, she broke up with me, and a few weeks later she came back and said, I made a horrible mistake, please take me back, you know, we belong together, and oh, by the way, I slept with this guy. You know? So I'm crushed, I'm crushed. So, but in order to kind of keep what I was terrified of losing again, I folded and, and gave up, you know, my stand on preserving myself. And several months later, I get, well, I'm pregnant. And I go and look for counsel. I'm like, I don't know if this is my child. I've made a horrible mistake. If I hadn't done what I'd done, I'd be no question that it wasn't my child. Uh, I don't know what to do. And I didn't get any good, wise counsel at all. And I thought to myself, again, trying to please, trying to do the right thing. If there's any chance this is my child, I've got to marry this woman. If there's any chance this is my child, I've got to do the right thing. And that's what I did. Well, one of the things that came out much later in life was that, lo and behold, this was not my child. Um, 
So it was just one thing after the other. And then when I went to Europe with the military, it was a, it was a perfect storm, as we would say, of events in my life. Or I should say a perfectly bad storm. Uh, one of the first things that happened was I went into my unit in, in the military, which was a whole bunch of other guys like me. Um, all of the guards, I was on an installation in Europe where all of the surplus and non-missile warheads were stored on top of a mountain. And that was our base of operations. We had warheads there, and we went out all over Europe and worked on weapon systems all over Europe. And we had real security guards there, and they were all special forces from all over the Army. Pathfinders, Rangers, you name it, they were there, and they were some really far-out guys. And then there were just guys like me, eggheads, guys that worked on you know, encoding systems, messaging systems, uh, electronics, the actual physical warheads, everything you can imagine that goes along with nuclear weapons, that was us. So we got these hardcore guys that, that some of them had literally just come out of several months in the jungle and then they put them on a post in Italy sitting there with a gun. And they're going stir crazy. These guys are nuts. They're like, well, yeah, find something crazy to do. And, and believe me, they did on a regular basis. And so they, they bring me into this and they set me down and I'm unpacking my things. And, and, and I, never, I never, one of the things I feel safe saying this, I never used drugs until I joined the Army. That's where I learned to use drugs. And some of the first people I got drugs from were my supervisors, my higher-ups. And I would find myself in their homes and in the bar with them during business hours getting drunk and getting high. So then I go to Europe, I go to Italy, and they bring me into my room which we had a huge barracks there. You could live off base or you could live in this huge barracks. And, and I go in and I'm unpacking my stuff and I suddenly realize there are other people in the room. And I turn around and there's these group of guys all standing there looking at me and they're pretty serious. Um, well, what's up? And I'm thinking they're going to say, hey, welcome, you know, and they're looking at me like, you know, they're going to do something bad if I don't say or do the right thing. And they said, first thing they ever said to me, do you get high? And the way they were looking at me, I knew there was only one right answer, which happened to be the correct answer anyway. Absolutely, man. Yeah, sure. Peace. You know, so we start getting high. And then they start to inform me how they run things around there. And they did run things around there. And long story short, these guys were heavily involved in the occult. And I don't know if any of you know much about this, but there is a very, very heavy presence and influence of the occult in the American military. It is flourishing in the American military. So here I am. I'm angry at God. I'm, I'm, and talk about the sovereignty of God, which I'd love to at any point in time if you've got a whole day to talk about it. But I was there going, you know, I don't know that God's so good. I tried to do everything that I knew how to do to please God. And look what's happened to me. Just one thing after the other. Just the most horrible, unimaginable thing. Not to mention, I did forget to mention, I was also victim of abuse at the hands of friends of the family when I was younger than him. Five, six years old. You imagine it. Um, so I'm angry at God. I'm looking at God going, okay, why? Why? Well, the first thing that these guys shared with me was the concept of humanism, which is, if you are familiar with that, it's dog eat dog and you'd better be the big dog and get yours first and make sure nobody gets yours. Well, then that led into a little step further and a little step further until, and it was all making sense to me. You know what? That's right. 
That's, that's my experience. It's dog eat dog. You try to be a nice guy. You try to be a good guy. You even try to be a hardcore straight up guy. And it's still, you just can't get away from it. The officers, the government, the president, you name it, they're corrupt. That was my thinking. Now, we all know that does happen. That's not my general view of the, the office. Let's say the office. The man, I don't know about. I need to respect the office and pray for the office. But the point is, I saw corruption and backwardness all the way up the ladder as high as you can imagine going. And I was just done with it. I was fed up. And I, I really liked that idea. You know what? I need to start taking care of number one. I'm capable of doing that. I've proven that. I'll take care of number one. Well, then that led to the ultimate lie. And this is the ultimate lie. That Satan is the one who wants you to be free. And the God is the one that wants to hem you in and give you a bunch of rules and regulations to obey so he can make you do what he wants you to do. Satan wants you to be free. And if you know anything about the occult and Satanism and, and real black art, the ultimate practitioner believes what you believe for the most part. He believes that there is a war between God and Satan. He believes that Satan rebelled and he was thrown out. But he believes that Satan has a chance to win this thing. And he believes if you can help Satan win this thing, you'll share a part in his kingdom. And I was falling into that. And not only that, but I'm getting more and more access and freedom and authority and, and, and uh, I hesitate to use the word power, but way too much freedom and, and uh, leeway influence in the military. Way too much access to things that really matter. And this is really scary. And so I ended up dealing drugs. I learned to speak, read, and write Italian. Because of my job, I had to learn Italian. The very first thing they did was send me off to a University of Maryland campus on a main base, and I took three semesters of conversational Italian so that I could translate and move around independently and not be part of some military convoy. And so I wouldn't go down to the cities and the parks and do what the other GIs were doing. I'd get and I had a little portion. I'd get in my portion. I'd go as far away from the Americans as I could get. And, and I was free and I was safe and I'd buy large quantities of hashish and I'd bring it back and share it with my friends. And, um, and that was what I always did. I just wanted to get as far away from the Americans as I could. And so all of that was developing and there were two things going on. I was being groomed for a military career and I was becoming more and more fed up with the military. And they were giving me more and more authority, more and more access, and I was giving myself more and more rope to hang myself with. I had companies that were outside the military reaching out to me saying, if you leave the military, we'd like for you to consider applying with us. Because there are civilian companies that build this stuff that are looking for talented people. I also had the U.S. government telling me, if you ever leave the military and you ever go to work for another country, which at the time Israel was developing their program and they were looking to recruit talent, they said if you ever go outside the United States and go to work, you will not collect your first paycheck. You won't live long enough. I was going through anti-espionage training. I was being taught. This is how Eastern Bloc countries will trap you into giving them information particularly if you're married, and we had to go through training. These are the ways they'll trick you and trap you, and then when they've got you where they want you, they say, help us or else. Had to go through all of that. I didn't do KP duty and, and peeled tomatoes and potatoes and all of that stuff. 
I, my job, particularly when I was in the United States, is I was an escort for top secret documents and materials. I flew on civilian aircraft and civilian airplanes with a sidearm under my clothing, and the only person who knew that I was there or the reason I was there or that I was armed was the pilot. And I would regularly go to the airport with top secret materials and inform the pilot. I had to go to the airline. They knew I was coming. I would go to the pilot. He would get briefed and all that, and I would sit typically in first class in civilian clothes armed. And that's what I did for my duty. You know, other military units, well, you've got to go to the kitchen this week. No, this week you're going to fly over here and escort you know, and it sounds glamorous, but it got to the point where it was just like KP. You're like, oh man, again, I gotta go again. Um, so anyway, all of that kind of now. If I hope that's all. Is it tracking for you? Following the story, guys. So now I'm in Europe, and the government starts to figure out what's going on. And now up to that point, they would bring visiting high-ranking officers up, what we called it, up on the hill. There was a workshop on the top of this mountain where we would work on warheads. And one of the things that we did, because we were a research and development unit, was that people working on warheads all over the world would realize this is an inefficient process and we should do it a little bit differently. And so they would send us coded documents through the right channels and say, we're suggesting you make a change to the manual. And so then we had a team, we would go out and go through the process and talk about it, and then we would write out and say, we concur or we disagree. And if we concur, then we would have to write all new pages for the manual and send them back out to every unit in the world. That was part of what we did. It gives you a picture of kind of where I was at. Again, not to bring any glory to myself, but to give you the picture. And so they would bring visiting high-ranking officers through, and they would come over to me and say, Nixon! Tell us the procedure for such and such, and I'd quote it from the book like that. And, you know, that, that they would leave and, you know, give me the pat on the back. That's our boy, you know. And the whole time I'm like, you know, whatever. And I couldn't wait to get off and go do my thing. And, and I had utter contempt for them. Well, they started to find out what was going on through their typical military investigative channels trying to chase down little drug users, and they started to figure out there's something wrong here. And uh, long story short, they started to come after me. And it became a game of cat and mouse. And I, during this period, just like I see a lot of you guys are carrying your Bible, which is refreshing to me because a lot of us don't anymore since we've got our smartphones, you know. But the point I'm making, back then I carried around a satanic Bible and a Necronomicon just like you carry your Bible today. Everywhere I went I had those books with me. And... Um, and they began, it began to be this just out, outright animosity between me and my commanding officers, which was a very stupid thing for me to do. And so they kept at it and they kept at it until, and they kept giving me uh, tests which kept coming back negative, and I didn't do anything to change the results of the test. I would take a urine test, it would come back negative. I would take it over and over and over again. They couldn't figure out why they couldn't get me. Well, finally, what they did was one of the guys that was under my group, call it a coven, if you will, um, he went out somewhere he had been warned and trained, don't go there and buy drugs. They're watching that place all the time. And he went and bought drugs there and he went and got caught. And so they pulled him in and said, we want you to help us get Nixon. We know what he's doing. We know what he's all about. We want to make an example out of him. We've been making an example out of him here. Now we want to make an example out of him over here. And so he rolled over and gave them the information, and long story short, next thing I knew, I found myself in an Italian court of law facing life for dealing drugs. 
And the military police took me in front of this female Italian judge and, you know, we got him, here's the evidence, and you throw the book at him. And so she starts talking to the district attorney and all of the court officers in Italian, and at which point I understood what she was saying, and at which point I spoke up and I said, I'll tell you everything you want to know, but I want to talk to you and your guy. I don't want the military police there because I was being accused of something I hadn't done. I was being accused of masterminding a cocaine ring, and my thing was hashish. And so I went behind closed doors and spoke to the judge, and I told her, these people are accusing me of something I didn't do. I'm guilty of A, B, C, and D. I told her right up front. Now, simultaneously, something was happening, personally, internally. The whole time I was into this satanic, black magic thing, there was something deep in my soul was saying, this isn't right. This isn't you, man. You know, regardless of what you think about the world and religion and God, this isn't you. You're not that guy. This has gone too far. This is not you. And when I got busted and when that happened, and they put me in the brig and they put me in solitary confinement, and I had the, the, the classic jailhouse experience where I kind of came to myself. And so now I find myself in this courthouse, and I said to her, I'm guilty of all the above, but I'm not guilty of what you're trying to throw me in prison for life for dealing cocaine but I know who is guilty and I know who's trying to put the finger on me to save themselves and I'll tell you everything you want to know and that was what I did and so she let me go and said I don't want to charge this guy with anything gave me back to the military the military put me through murder and I to this day I tell you no lie I do not know how long they kept me because I was in solitary confinement and they would come in on a regular basis and tell me we're going to throw the book at you. You're going to spend the rest of your life in, living, left life in Leavenworth. And then we'd argue and we'd talk and then would go on for a couple of days and then they'd come in and say, pack your bags, we're going to send you home today. We're done with you. We want to get rid of you. And then they'd come in that night and say, we changed our mind. And they just kept playing with me. And then the whole time they're debriefing me. And I won't go too deep into that, but that can be a pretty intense process. What do you know? Who have you talked to? And so after many, many, many days, I don't even know, they finally did come and get me and put me on a plane and send me home. Um, so I come home. How long have I been going here? What's it? Uh, 820? Five minutes late. Five minutes late? Oh, <laughs> I was like, whoa, I just got started. Praise God. You're off the hook. Um, so I come back to the United States. Now, for 18 months, I've been using drugs. I've been, you know, for all intents and purposes, worshiping Satan. I've been, you know, I remember one guy came up to me one time and tried to talk to me about Jesus, and I put him up against the wall off of his feet and threatened him with bodily harm if he ever talked to me about that hypocrite Jesus again. But while I was in that solitary confinement, there was like a spiritual war going on in my head. And there's an old rock and roll group called Blue Oyster Cult, and they have a song, The Veteran of Psychic Wars. And I was like that guy. And I'm in my mind, I'm going, you know, Satan's just as dirty and corrupt as the rest of them. You know, it's just, it's ugly. The whole thing is, you know, just, I, I didn't want to commit suicide, but I just didn't want anything to do with any of it. I don't want to be a bad guy. I don't want to be a good guy. You people just put me out somewhere in the wilderness and leave me alone. Please, just leave me alone. And so I came back from Europe and... I mean, according to people who knew me, my family, they were like, they didn't even recognize me. I was just like a zombie. I, I was just, you know, like, you people have no clue. Your, your little lives and your, what you're, 
You just have no clue. And I don't care to talk to any of you about it. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do anything bad. I don't want to hear about God. I want to be neutral. I want to be left alone. And that's what I did. Um, I moved into a little camper on a piece of family land, and I grew my hair, my, long, my beard long, my hair long, and all I wanted to do was smoke a little dope and be left alone and work a simple job. That was all I wanted to do. Well, that didn't last too long before I kind of found my way back into society. You know, hey, peace, love, rock and roll. I'm getting lonely. And um, not too long after that, several years after that, I found myself in the biker scene. Freedom, right? It's the freedom, man. You, you know, Be free, be independent, don't step on me. And so, you know, I got myself a Harley, and I'm riding a Harley, and I'm going to all the events, and I'm wearing a sidearm, open carry, and police pulling me over and harassing me, and I'm challenging them on my constitutional rights. And, you know, I'm just like, you know, don't you dare mess with me. You don't even know what you're talking about, man. You know, and I'll, I'll stand up for my rights. I'm not afraid of you. And uh, so now I had a statement to make, you know, and so I'm riding the Harley, and that goes on for several years. And I ended up getting back into drugs very heavily, serious drugs. And there came a point when I was, uh, I had a wolf that I had raised from a cub. I had a Doberman pincher. You know, I'm this eccentric guy. I have my Harley, but I've lost my home because I don't have a decent job and I can't make money, keep responsibility. So I've got a Chevy van and my Harley's parked in a friend's living room and I'm living in my van with a wolf and a Doberman and a ferret. And I finally... And, and, I'm, and I'm smoking cocaine all night long with a buddy who was a dealer, so I didn't have to pay for it. So that was horrible. It was just show up and use it for two or three days at a time. And I hope none of you know anything about that. But if you ever use cocaine, particularly smoke it, it does incredible things to the physical human body. You, you don't need sleep. You can't get drunk. It's unbelievable. I mean, physically you're probably drunk, but you don't feel drunk. You're able to function, talk, whatever. But when you stop trying to use it, there's this horrible, horrible physical crash that happens. And so we had figured out there's a thing called Tylox, it's synthetic morphine. And we had figured out that we can get high on Coke and stay as high as we... We would actually sit around this table and have a bottle of... I mean, a bowl of ice water in the middle of the table with a rag in it. And when you got so high you thought you were going to pass out or stroke out or, you know, something, you'd take that rag out of that ice water and throw it on your head. Whoa, man! <laughs> They'd wake you up, you know, snap you out of it a little bit, and you'd come back down to life a little bit and take another toke off the pipe. So this is going to an important place right now. So I came to this point, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. This comes to a key question I've heard a lot of people talk about. I had made that profession of faith when I was 14, and a lot of people would tell you that's when you got saved. You believed in Jesus. You confessed it with your mouth. You said you really believed it. You did everything you could to follow it. But I was driving down the road in this van with the wolf and the Doberman and the ferret, and I'm, you know, I've been high for several days, and now I'm eating the morphine to try to come down without dying. And I'm just, I just, it was the absolute quintessential prodigal moment where I was, I came to the realization I have driven a Porsche in Italy and worn all the right clothes and gone to all the right discotheques and clubs all over Europe, New York. That was just emptiness. That was nothing. It was worse than nothing. I rode a Harley for several years, and I rode with a gang. I never joined them, but they asked me to, but I rode with them just for the experience. What's that like, man? Wow, totally outlaw-free, rebellious. I've done it all. I have done it all, and I've had this highly classified job, blah, 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 
And it's just nothing. It's all emptiness. It's all miserable. And I found myself saying, you know what? It just dawned on me that if Jesus really was who I believed He was the first time I heard about Him, and before I saw all the hypocrisy and all of the mess, if Jesus really was who I thought He was, He's the only hope. That's the only... There's nothing else. There has to be a good, just, loving God, and there has to be this guy, Jesus, who cares enough about me to help me out of this mess and give me a reason to live. And I had looked at Buddhism, and of course, you know what other things I'd looked at, complete ends of the spectrum, but I just, I, I just knew this in my heart and my mind, and I said to myself, and at that point, I'm really kind of saying to God, you know, if you are real, and if, if Jesus is real, and you are who I thought you could be when I was 14 and I first put my hope in you, you're the only answer. And at that moment in time, and I can take you out in the country right now and show you the exact spot in the road where I was in that van, that moving van, when God spoke to me and He said, now I'm going to save you. And why then? Because then I fully understood the condition of man apart from God. I fully understood what Solomon says, that everything is vanity. Everything. It doesn't matter. You name it, you dress it up, including religion apart from God, it's vanity. And you understand that, and you understand that I'm the answer, and you're willing to surrender everything. In light of all of that, and knowing what it's going to cost you, you're not going to be popular with the girls, you're not... You're willing to give up everything. Now I'm going to save you right there at that point in your personal life. And I went to a phone and called my dear mother, who now her story, she had gone to college and graduated who's who among American university students and had a master's degree in family counseling. And I called her and said, you know, this is what's been going on with it. She says, yeah, I know, I've been hearing about it. And, you know, she tells stories about me showing up at her house late at night, wearing a gun, wild-eyed, out of my mind, riding a Harley. Hey, Mom, how's it going? And her having to watch me get on that bike and ride off into the night, knowing I was just going to go put more stuff in my system and wait for a policeman to pull me over. And so I told her what was going on, and she said, Son, I, I've been thinking about doing an intervention, but I knew you, and I knew if we did that, you'd get on that bike and leave, and we'd probably never see you again for God knows how long. But now you're calling me, and I've been praying and pleading for God. She also tells a story. When I was in Europe, she didn't know where I was. No one knew where I was at except the military. And she stood. She literally put her Bible in the center of the living room floor and stood on her Bible and said, He's my son, and you give me the authority to pray over him, and I'm praying for him, and you know where he is. And she prayed, and I believe my mother prayed me through that, and I believe she saved my life. And at one point, the military came to me and said, boy, have you not contacted your family? No, forget that. They ordered me. You, could, you know, she's bugging us to death. Call her and let her know you're alive, where you're at. So I said to her, you know, Mom, I need help. This is the first time in my life cocaine has got me. I used to be able to lie to myself about the beer and the, all the pot and everything else, but cocaine has got me. I can't quit. I can't stop just because I want to stop. She made a few phone calls, and I was the first person to ever go through. Um, it's, it's got several different names it's been through. At the time, it was Amethyst in Charlotte. It was one of the premier drug and alcohol recovery facilities in Charlotte, and I was the first person to ever go through there on a full scholarship just because she knew people. So 
Uh, Lord help me. So one of the part of the process that you go through in, in getting yourself clean is something called a personal inventory. And you, you write a journal of everything that's good about yourself, and you also write a journal about everything bad you've ever done that's eaten your conscience. And so I did that, and it was pretty lengthy. And then they bring in somebody to talk to about it. And sovereignty of God, the guy they brought in to talk to me, I didn't know anything about him. That's the whole idea. You never met them before. You tell them everything. You never would tell anybody. Get it off your chest. Get it out there and confess it. And then you supposedly never see that person again in your life. That's what makes you able to be completely open. And so I'm sharing this story with this guy, and I'm like, man, I know you think I'm nuts. And he goes, let me stop you right there and tell you something. I worked for the government for 30 years, and I happen to have some experience with some of the stuff you're talking about, and I don't think you're crazy at all. And that was a gift from the Lord, and he shared some things with me I needed to hear. Well, then I went outside after that interview, and I fell on my face literally, and I built a little fire, and I took that notebook, and I said, God, I'm giving this all to you. I am yours, I'm 100% yours, this is yours, it belongs to you, and I'm burning it right here in front of you, I don't ever want to touch it again, and I'm telling you right now, if I ever, 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 whether it's religion, or rebelliousness, or sin, or whatever, if I ever try to get off the path again, I'm giving you my personal permission and plea that you'll do whatever it takes to get me back on that right path. Do not let me get away with anything. And ever since that day, he's honored that prayer. So then on forward, um, I'm trying to gauge time, guys. Bear with me. Pray for me. Um, so again, several things happened, just unimaginable things. I was doing volunteer work in the prisons. I was doing youth programs in the prisons. I was telling everybody, the only answer to your problem is Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, we know. You know, oh, the program, oh, the books, oh, the counseling. Yeah, that's all good. But ultimately, the only thing that's going to set you free is Jesus. And I got asked to leave some prisons because of that. They said, you're not a chaplain. You're not. I said, I don't care. You asked me to come and help these kids. They're listening. They're excited. And they were. They were listening to me. But they didn't want me preaching the gospel in the prison because I wasn't an authorized chaplain who'd gone through their channels. So... Again, things started happening, just like things I couldn't even dream up that discouraged me, that knocked me down, that just really took the life and the wind out of me. And I found myself, okay, I can drink a beer. Okay, I can smoke a joint. You know, it's not the end of the world. It's not really a sin. And, you know, I deserve it. Gosh, I've been through hell, you know. And that progressed to the point to where I found myself in the most miserable position I can ever imagine. I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I was truly regenerate. I was still reading the Bible and thinking about these things constantly. I couldn't stop thinking about it as the Holy Spirit was on me all the time. But I'm trying to find relief from my pain in the world. And it just kept progressing. And I feel, I'd feel more guilty and I'd get more bondage into sin and I'd feel more guilty and I'd get more into bondage and sin. And it got to the point I was living in a, in a house with a bunch of guys and they were rock and roll musicians and I was a martial arts instructor and, and we just, we were cool, right? Quote, unquote, we were cool and we had the parties and the girls and, you know, and, and my buddies would give me such a hard time because it'd be three o'clock in the morning and everybody's trying to have a good time and I, but I couldn't, I couldn't get drunk enough or high enough to forget about God. I'd be sitting in the midst of all this going, this ain't right. This ain't right. This is going bad. This is wrong. This is not right. I'm under conviction privately. 
And then somebody would make the mistake of mentioning God, even offhand. offhand. Oh, boy. Oh, no, that's not right. The Bible says this. You know, I was still preaching. And they say, man, you're bringing us down, dude. <laughs> we love you, Dave, but you can't do that, man. Um, okay, so it all got to a point to where I, w- I had been studying the Scriptures. In the midst of all this, I'm still studying the Scriptures. I'm just looking for an answer. And it was the week of, you know, don't throw tomatoes, Easter. And I was studying Yeshua and his disciples. And I was reading about the road to Emmaus. And the whole time now, I had started telling my friends, don't be surprised if I'm not alive another week. They're like, what? Dude, you're not suicidal. What are you talking about? I said, no, that's not it, man. God's not going to put up with me forever. I know the word. There is a sin unto death. The Lord will not let me continue with this. And he's got me under conviction, and he's been trying to turn me around, and I'm just in bondage. And, of course, now they're lost. What are you talking about? You know? uh, but I was convinced God's going to take my life if I keep this up. And so I'm just in agony because I tell you from experience and hope you never have to learn it. That first time you go with that childlike faith and say, I'm all yours, that's easy, guys. That is easy. But if you ever find yourself back in bondage to that mess and your mind's now twisted around and you've tasted of the fruit and you've turned back around, it is not easy. It is not easy because if you cons- you've confused yourself, you've seared your conscience as though by a hot iron, you're in a really, really bad place. And so I'm saying to God, you know, I know you're going to take me out, and I just don't know what to do because I don't know how to get free anymore. And, you know, all because of these bad things you let happen to me again after I was serving you with everything I had, I don't even know how much I trust you anymore, and I just don't know what to do, but I still know you're God because you won't leave me alone. And I'm, and I'm some, all of this, and I start reading about the road to Emmaus, and I read how Yeshua, after they lived with him and walked with him for three years plus, he opened their mind to the Scriptures. And in that moment, I felt like the Lord said to me, you see, you're right. You understand the Scriptures intellectually. Judgment's going to come. I won't tolerate this forever. You really are under conviction. But what you don't know is your mind hasn't been opened yet to how much I love you. You're focused on the judgment, but nobody's ever really taught you about the love. And in that moment, I can't even verbalize, he opened my mind and helped me to understand how much he loved me. And it wasn't the fear of judgment, and it wasn't the conviction of the scriptures that set me free. It was the realization of the depth of his love and the true character of his love. And I was just blown away by that. And I said, you know what? That's it. That's the whole answer. I surrender. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do right now. And now I had hair down to here. I had a a beard that I could braid my goatee and it was still this long. But I had enough education to understand that anytime you do drugs, it's in your hair, physically in your hair. If you did cocaine six years ago and quit and your hair's been growing for six years, they can cut that hair and test it. The drugs are in your hair. And I'd been reading this whole thing about Paul, shame to have long hair, you know, what's, you know, Jesus, we think Jesus had, Nazarites had long hair, what's up with that? You know, and, but I, I, I was saying, what do I do, Lord? And it immediately came to me, you need to vow a vow. You need to set yourself apart. You need to flee from this unrighteousness. And you have to physically flee. Because if you're here at home, and I was home alone at that time, if you're here at home when those guys come back, you're going to fall right back into all of that. You're not strong enough to say no. And I knew that. 
And I immediately went out behind the house and I shaved my head and I shaved my beard and I burned it and I fell on my face and cried out to God, I want to belong to you. I don't ever want to find myself in this mess again. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And I went right back in the house and I packed up, by then I had a Rottweiler, packed up my Rottweiler, all of my camping equipment and I got in my four-wheel drive truck and I went. And I called my sister and said, do you still have this piece of land out in the country? Yeah, well, I said, I want to live on your land. What? Of course... Nothing probably surprised them by then. And that's what I did. And I went and I put up my tent on this piece of land and I went and joined Southern Evangelical Seminary. And I lived in that tent for eight months. And then when I went to seminary, I had people trying to tell me, well, the Lord doesn't speak to you. He doesn't give you personal revelation. He only reveals things through His Word. And, and, and I don't mean to run down Southern Evangelical. a fantastic school. I wish I could go back knowing what I know now and be a free young man be able to pursue that education. But I was sitting there going, no, (laughs) if there's no personal revelation, there's no way I would have got here. There's no personal revelation that contradicts the Word, that goes beyond the Word, but the Lord can certainly speak to me on a personal basis. And then I would argue with the professor, and then there'd be a bush pilot in the back of the room stand up and say, well, I'm sorry, professor, but... um," And this was... um, This guy would stand up, and other people did too. He's like, I know for a fact I was serving in Africa, and the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night and told me to go fly to this village. And when I got there, those people needed me. And then he would say, well, you know, he would explain that. And again, I'm not knocking that guy. I learned later on that he had been burned by some charismatic things that he had believed in, and so he had kind of reacted the opposite way. So I live in his tent for several months, and... um, there came a point, you know, now the whole time I was under conviction and I was on drugs and all that, I was um, hearing from the Spirit every day. No matter, it didn't matter how much I drank, smoked, whatever, the Spirit was just pounding on me. And so now I surrender my life to Him, I get my act cleaned up, and it's like silent. Um, like, where, where, where'd the Lord go? I, you know, I figured once I cleaned my act up, everything would just dramatically get better and be wonderful, and it was dead silent. One of the things we were studying in seminary was the sovereignty of God and the story of Job. And I was studying this and asking the Lord to reveal the meaning to me. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Lord, why, why are you not speaking to me? Why do I feel so dead inside? Why do I feel so empty? And I felt like at that moment in the time the Lord gave me a picture of him and Satan talking in heaven. Him, the sun's coming in and out, you know the story. And, and, and Hasatan coming before him and saying, okay. Well, if you bless him and you take care of him and you bring him in and put your arms around him, he'll follow you and obey you. But if you remove that intense presence of the Spirit from him, you just leave him out there alone in the wilderness a little while, he'll fold up like a house of cards. And I felt like the Lord was showing me that he was saying to him, okay, let's see what happens. And there was a very important point to that, was that, I at that moment said to myself and to the Lord, you know what, if I never feel that incredible blessing feeling of the overflowing of the Holy Spirit again, even if I didn't know who wins in the end, I would still serve you. And if you come and bless me with your presence, fine. If you don't, I still have to do what I know is right because you've revealed it to me. And I think he wanted me to have that realization that it's not about the spiritual experience of being blessed and feeling the presence of the Spirit. That's a beautiful side benefit, absolutely. But the point is, will you serve him even if he slays you? Will you serve him if you end up in prison for 14 years and you don't deserve it? 
And I, I said, I'll, I'll serve you, you, but you have to make me able because even then I understood what the Word said. It's Him who puts it in me to will and do His good pleasure. If you don't put it in me to do it, I won't be able to do it, I'll tell you right now. So, several years later, and uh, I hope I'm going to be timely now. Um, what time we got? It is uh, 8.16. 8.16? Okay. Um, several years later, I was in missions. I was going to a, a congregation, an independent Baptist congregation. I'd been to Bolivia. I had um, served on a lot of you know local missions and, and regional missions, and I was on a board for missions, and I was just really seeking to serve the Lord. And now I'm already encountering in the Baptist church the same stuff in my family. The military is like, oh, come on. You're telling me you know what the Word of God says, and you still don't want to obey it because of tradition. you know. But the, by now, the Lord's got my attention. He's saying, you don't worry about what they're doing. You do what I told you to do. I told you to come here and serve until I tell you to go somewhere else. You become a part of this family and you do your best to be a beneficial part of this family until I tell you otherwise. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So I would tell the pastor, yeah, the word says this. I know, David. And I, okay, as long as you, you know. And then we'd go do this. So there were a few of us who were praying about, you know, we've been to Bolivia and there's like a, every denomination you can imagine is there working. And if you're in any kind of a rural, I mean, a... Uh, a developed area at all. There's a church on every other corner. They're very spiritual people in South America. And we were all feeling like we want to go somewhere where people got absolutely nothing, just nothing. And we kept thinking about Africa. And so we started praying about Africa. And I was going to a Christian businessmen's luncheon. Now, this is a crazy story, but by now I'm developing an educational software, which was eventually piloted in two of the largest schools in the state. And I'm in a business, and, and I'm going to a Christian businessmen's luncheon, and this guy comes and talks about Malawi, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, but it's also very stable, safe. You know, it's a perfect place to take teams to go on missions. I'm like, this is perfect. So he came, I brought him in, and we spoke to the board, and myself and two other men decided we would go with him to assist his team and to be fact-finders for opportunities for our congregation. So we go to Malawi, and I immediately encounter these young pastors who are independent. And they're working their hearts out. And I get to know them very quickly. And I was in Malawi for almost a month the first time. And they started telling me it was the worst drought in 50 years and children were dying in mass numbers. They die bad enough as it is or frequently enough. And so I was really touched and I was moved. And I have on video the first time I ever approached the land where the project is at. And I was filming at the time and I was so overcome by the Holy Spirit when we arrived I couldn't even speak. And I'm not a hyper-spiritual type like that. Um, and I didn't know the significance at the time. Of course, now I do looking back. And so I asked these young men. They're telling me how poor they are. They're struggling to help the orphans. They're struggling to disciple people. And, I'm, of course, I'm into my mind. I'm, I'm thinking I'm already on James 127. I'm looking for the pure religion. Ever since I came to faith, I, I don't want to hear from men. I don't want you to, seminary is great, but I don't want them to tell me what to believe I want you to teach me, God, eyeball to eyeball. If it doesn't come from you, I'm not going to buy it. I'll, I'll study the Word. I'll be a Berean. I'll listen to counsel. But ultimately, you have to be the one to confirm it for me, just like you confirmed for me your very existence and, and who Yeshua is. Um, and so I'm, I asked these young men, why haven't you joined up with the Baptists, the Roman Catholics? They'll give you all kinds of resources. They'll help you build a building. and. They kept saying to me, "We want to, no, we don't want the traditions of men. That was literally what they said to me. We don't want the traditions of men. We want to follow the Holy Spirit. And so after three weeks in Africa, my friends have already come back, and this pastor I went with 
I said, you know, these people need this program. They want this program. This is what it's going to cost. One of the things he'd asked me to do was help him kind of figure all that out. And I, he said, well, we're a very small congregation. It'll be years before we can do anything like that. I said, well, do you mind if I step in and help? He said, no. Huh? And so before I came back from that very first trip, we put the foundation for the very first building in the ground. And I came home and told my friends and family, God's called me to start a ministry in Africa. And they said, you are nuts. You really are. You're you really nuts now. How are you going to do that? I said, you know, all I know is if God told me to do it, and I'm convinced he did, he'll do it. I just have to make myself available. And I sat down at my desk and made a little video from my trip, 20-minute video, and started showing it to everybody that I could get to watch it. And in three months, I raised $39,000. And three months later, I was back in Africa, and I stayed there for six weeks, and I hired 120 local workers, and we started the project. And so that was 2002, July of 2002. And the Lord allowed things to progress, and he would bless things. But this is a key part of what I want to share with you guys, particularly you guys. Not just a group of guys, but you guys. Is that I noticed a pattern that money would come in, and we would be blessed, and things would grow, and then all of a sudden the money would dry up, and things would get really difficult, and I would find myself going, okay, what's wrong? If there's anything I understand about that story of Job and God and his sovereignty is that it doesn't matter if you made a mistake. It doesn't matter if somebody close to you made a bad choice. It doesn't matter if Satan really is out to get you as you hear people. Who's devil's out to get me today? What, don't, don't give him any free press. Hush about the devil. He wants you to talk about him. He's a playground bully. Talk about Yeshua. And so I say, all I know is to look to you and say, if it's me, somebody else, the enemy, whatever it is, you're the only answer. Tell me what to do about it. And he would reveal to me, it would be a process sometimes, but he would reveal to me, this is something you need to change in your organization. Or this is a person who's not in line. There, there is sin in your camp. And he would reveal it to me, and we would fix it, and we would be serious about it, and as soon as we'd get it fixed, everything comes back to normal. And I saw this pattern. And so I want you to see this quick video, and it's about seven minutes, and, and please forgive me if I'm running just a couple minutes long. Um, but then I want to share, you know, my, my uh, punchline with you, which I think is very, very important. So this film was made in 2009 by Peter Goff. If some of you know him. He went to Africa for a year and lived with his wife, and they visited the project, and they made this video in 2009. All right, thank you. I can cap that off very quickly. Um, one of the reasons this book was written is because this journalist came to Africa to do a story because the government found out, the United States government found out that the amount of money that the government sends overseas is absolutely dwarfed by the amount of money that individual believers send overseas every year. And the U.S. government was shocked by that fact. And they said, we've got to figure out what this phenomenon's all about. Is there any coordination? Is there any? So he went to Malawi to do a story on this, and the director of social welfare, which is part of the book, had a full-color picture of our project on the wall. And he said, this is the guy you need to talk to, and gave him my business card, and I was in the country at the time. Um, and so he came and said, I was recommended to come and talk to you. And... Uh, and the night before, I'd lost the first child I'd ever lost in death in Africa. And this child's in the book as well. And he had HIV, and then he caught spinal meningitis. He was 10 years old, and he weighed 29 pounds. 
And I was in the hospital with him every day, putting diapers on him, feeding him with a plastic syringe, and we were treating him for meningitis. And he finally got through the meningitis, and he was just severely malnourished, and the doctor told me, if we can just get some nutrition in him, he's fine. His blood counts are good. His HIV's not bad. And I went home praising God. Praise God. It was a miracle. It was unbelievable. Everybody, even the nurses and the other people in the hospital, were just amazed he survived. They called me in the middle of the night that night and said, so Uzo's dead. What? Why should have died last week? What? So the and I in, in Africa, most places in Africa, they don't wash your clothes, clean your bed, or cook your food. You have to have somebody come with you who lives in the courtyard outside and cooks your food the same way they do at home over a stick fire. They clean your clothes and hang them out on a tree limb. If you don't have that, you got nothing. And I'd hired women to take care of him. And so I went the next morning demanding to know what happened. And they said, well, they came in the middle of the night and said, we've got to move him from critical care to nutrition. They didn't have any gurneys or stretchers or any of that. And this child, you could touch him, he'd start screaming with all the spinal taps and that he had to keep treating and checking the meningitis. And so they made them pick him up and carry him. And he was screaming. And they carried him over to the nutrition ward. And they said, he doesn't belong here. Take him back where you got him. And they carried him all the way back across the campus. And they said, we've already given up his bed. Take him back where we said. And they went back and forth for about three hours and him screaming bloody murder until he finally died in this woman's arms. And that very next morning, I met this journalist. And he said, tell me your story. Ah, I just fell apart. And you talk about questioning God. I'm standing there going, Lord, I wasn't in America, I was in Africa. I had a pocket full of money. I had an American doctor working with me. I was driving all over the country to find feeding tubes and all this stuff he needed and he didn't have. And, he, and we thought we cured him. We thought he was going to live. And you let one horrible human just mistreatment of him overnight take his life? And I struggled with that for years, for years. That was 2006. So I met this journalist the next day, and he hears this story. I'm gushing on him. But he already heard from the director of welfare the first time I walked in there. He and I butted heads. I want to have an orphanage. I said, he said, forget that. You'll never have an orphanage in my country. Said, what? And then he told me what he wanted me to do. And this is a good lesson to share. And so I was angry. And the African pastors with me, their eyes like this big, what? He did not just tell David that he couldn't do that. And now David's probably going to overreact, you know, passionate guy. And, I was, and the guy said, I know you're angry. I want you to pray about this and think about this. And I walked out and I went back to where I was staying that night. And I prayed and I thought about it and I stayed up all night. And it dawned on me, you know what, he's right. That means I don't have to have one adult for every five kids. He told me, you can't have a residential facility. I want you to do community-based. That means the community has to take responsibility for these kids. You don't take them off their hands. They live with aunts, uncles, grandparents. You don't take them out of their culture and separate them away from their culture. Whatever ministry you put into the child goes back into the community and back into the home that night. And then all those other resources you've used taking care of a child 24-7, you can now use to do community education and wells and feeding programs and discipleship and all that other stuff you need to be doing. And then not only that, and, and what ultimately happened was I would have my phone ring and it was some other American like me. I just got to Africa and they told me I can't. Okay, and they told me to call you. <laughs> Let's meet and I'll explain what he's talking about and the wisdom behind it. But what surprised me was that so many guys I couldn't get to grasp what I grasped that night. And I'm not proud of myself, but you know, the Lord by now, the obey, was Romans chapter 13. Unless that man's asking me to violate God's word, 
I need to submit. I need to do what He's asking me to do and trust God to give the increase. No matter how it looks. Walk by faith, not by sight. And so then several years later, he and I are very close and we're working close together so he sends this journalist to me. But then the journalist hears me tell him what faith-based organizations are doing wrong. He's expecting this die-hard Christian and what he's hearing is, I'll tell you right now what's wrong with humanitarian aid in the third world and I'll tell you what's wrong with it. We've been going over there and creating converts for hundreds of years. We've been pouring billions of dollars into the third world, so what's wrong? Why isn't it working? Why isn't the gospel setting these people free? Because the scripture doesn't say go make converts. It says go make disciples. And it's just like children. If you give them resources without discipleship, you're not only not helping them, you're probably going to reinforce the problem and cause more trouble. And that's where I'm at right now. And so 2008, three things happened. Back to back, three things happened. I had the privilege of taking Ethan, who was then five years old, to come in my home and live with me, to protect him, to keep him safe, to raise him up in the fear of God, and to make sure he had the chance that I never had and the rest of the men in my family never had, to break that generational cycle. Then a senior member of my staff emailed me and said, you need to know that the leader of the project, whom I loved like a brother, I'd taken him to the hospital for his wife to have children, you know, on numerous occasions, twice. <laughs> and um, to me, that's a lot. Um, and he emailed me and said, you need to know this man's crooked. He started out well, but he's gone, he's gone down the wrong road. And he outlined some things. And because we were so strict with the money, and we still are, because I'm a firm believer that I'm accountable for that stewardship, um, he couldn't embezzle money directly from me what he had done was he had fired two staff members and kept them on a ghost payroll. He was doing that for about three months when this guy emailed me. He was taking our vehicles, four-wheel drives and large cargo trucks, and hiring them out and pocketing. He was finding other ways to abuse the resources of the project. And so I had literally just taken him, taken custody of him, and I get this email. And I'm like, Africa's like, you talk about the grapevine. If anybody knows I'm coming, everybody knows I'm coming. And so not a soul, I didn't have a hotel, I didn't have a car, I didn't have anything. And five days later, not a soul knew I was coming until I walked onto the property. Totally unannounced. What are you doing here? And you saw that we were doing the USAID grant at that time. We were feeding 11,000 people a day. Not us all personally, partner organizations, uh, elementary schools, health clinics, distributing the food. Um, I said, well, and I, I wasn't going to lie to them. I said, I'm here to do a spot check. I told you this was going to happen. If we've got a partnership with the U.S. government, you're liable to have anybody walk up on the property at any time and demand to see your books. I'm here to do an investigation and a spot check. They didn't even know why. I told him, I'm going to check everybody out. And to be fair, I'm going to check us out too. And so we have this big group meeting, and I bring in a senior missionary. I brought in a court reporter that my attorney provided, our attorney there in Africa, a retired court reporter who worked for him. And I brought in a translator and a guy who had a degree in accounting. And that was my team. And they didn't know any of them. And I said, this is what I'm here to do. This is what we're going to do. And oh, by the way, if any of you know anything that's wrong here, you'd better tell me about it. Now, telling on each other is social suicide in Malawi. So I told them, I'm going to interview, interview every one of you privately. 
And if you tell me what's going on, you're doing what's right in the eyes of God and you're doing what's right for this organization in this country. And I won't tell who told it, but I will use the information the way it needs to be used. And we started bringing them in one by one. And, and some of them would just immediately, oh, thank God you're here, and they'd tell me everything. And some of them just absolutely refused to tell me the truth. Long story short, I discovered that everything I'd been told was true, and I ended up firing four people. And then I'm, I've been there a month. He's living with another family for a month because I got him. Now i got to put him with a family. Family he knew quite well, so it was all fine. And so I'm like, guys, I've been here for a month. i got a child in America. I, my, my organization is headless. i got to fix things. I don't, and they, so the senior team, that they said, David, you go back to America. We'll keep things moving here. You go back, deal with that. We'll figure out what to do next. I came home for two weeks, and I put him with another family that he knew quite well, and I went back to Africa to fix things and put new leadership in place. So before that, and so Ethan... Corruption, which the Lord helped me fix, and then the worldwide economy crashed. All within the space of two, three months. And almost overnight, we went from, our monthly budget was over $10,000, and we had four months reserve in the bank, and we were hitting our budget every month with donations and contributions. And almost overnight, with my travel and the expense and all the turnover of getting all that done, and the donations went from strong to almost nothing within three months, we just it, it all just fell apart. And in 2009, I had to close the school because I couldn't pay the teachers anymore. But, and, and I had senior people, senior people in worldwide missions that you might have seen some of them on television, I don't want to name names, said to me, you're already running day and night. You're flying to Africa on a moment's notice. You're in Africa three months out of the year. What are you going to do with a five-year-old child? What are you thinking? That'll be the end of your ministry. To which I reply, what are you thinking? That's my flesh and blood. That's my commandment. I have no right helping children in Africa when my own flesh and blood is about to suffer the same fate that I suffered. I need to make God's business my business and He'll take care of His own business. That belongs to Him. That's His business over there. He'll raise up someone else to manage it or He'll make sure it survives. And it has been a literal miracle that it has survived these three, four years. I have negotiated and talked with some of the biggest organizations in the world, Feed the Children, uh, Children of the Nations, and we've gone into talks and we've talked it all out. And ultimately, it comes down to, I've been discipling these people in Africa. There was a point when the, the rural leaders there wanted to take my life. Because, first of all, I was giving out a lot of stuff. Thank you, brother. Um, and, uh, and then I started doing real mission work, which was teaching them the truth about witchcraft. It has no power over you. You're a sincere believer in Yeshua? Forget about that. That has no power over you. Alcohol, polygamy, witchcraft. I started discipling these people. And those were all the things that the local leaders used to control them and keep them subjugated and keep them in the dark and maintain that spiritual stronghold that's there. And, um, and so I'm a firm believer in discipleship. I'm a firm believer in doing what's right no matter what. You know, let the Lord handle the consequences. You do what the Word says and you do what the Lord tells you to do in accordance with the Word. And so now we've got five full-time staff members instead of 25 by the time, you know, the film says 21 by the time it was all over 25 staff members. We have six HIV-positive orphans that have been with us the entire 10 years, except for one who's the child of two staff members who died of HIV, and now he's one of our orphans. 
they're in school. They're doing well. We help children go to other government schools, which is far below the quality of our school, but they're going to school. Um, but this is the nut, and then I'll be done with you guys and let you go. I told you that there seemed to be a pattern, that things were going well, and then they would just dry up. Sometimes it was like hitting a wall, like in 2008 when I found out this top guy is corrupt. Um, and this is like hitting a no, whole new kind of wall. And the Lord never, I never got comfortable with turning it over to anybody else because what they were going to do with it were all the things that I had learned you do not do. doesn't matter if you're the biggest in the world if you're doing it wrong. And that confirmation came through this book and the panel discussion in Washington when they're all saying, we just can't understand how you, one guy out in the middle of nowhere, flying by the seat of your pants, figured out what were best practices, which we've all been think tanking for years and have come up with those are best practices, and you came up with it by the seat of your pants. To which I replied, it had nothing to do with me, man. That's God. That's me praying, saying, tell me what to do with this problem, and him showing me in the word, this is what you do with that problem. It was a chance to glorify God. He'll show you the right answer. Even in the practical world, he'll show you the right answer. So the staff and I constantly, every time, no, that's not right. It's the wrong thing to do. We fought too hard for the right principles, for discipleship, for true faith, and not the religion and tradition of men. There's so much I would love to tell you of a story. They began to observe Shabbat, and the very next growing season, there was a drought in the country. I showed up with a missions team, and people on the team started to notice that when we got within a mile or two of our project, it was raining, and everything started to get green. And after about a week of the team being there, somebody said, that is so strange that nothing's growing pretty much anywhere else, but your place is like a jungle. And I had not told the senior pastor this on purpose. And that night, that senior pastor, the African guy, called me and said, I just discovered Isaiah 56. I can't believe this. And I said, I never shared that with you because I didn't want you to obey God in the hopes that you'll get this. I want you to obey God because He says so, and then He'll give you the blessing. So all that to say this. What I believe God did in 2008 by His sovereignty was the people who were working there, who were working for a paycheck, and they didn't have ownership, and they weren't following the Lord, they're gone. They left. Some people stayed there as volunteers, and they're already dirt poor, but they stayed because they believed in it, and they suffered for it. Trust me, they suffered for it. The other thing is that if I thought I knew what it meant to have a ministry for children, four years of being a single parent to a child who comes from a troubled home will teach you what it means to be a ministry to children. And the other thing is that I believe that the Lord has opened my eyes and He's now in the middle of opening my eyes to what real discipleship is. I've taught these people how to obey God's Word and you, you hold the line and you don't, you don't turn to the left or the right but I didn't understand what it meant to obey the whole counsel of God's Word. And I'm still learning what that means. And I believe this. When I first come into the, came into the Messianic faith, three years after I started the project in Africa, I began to say to people, this is exciting, man. I can see how this is going to impact Africa. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, okay, the basic application, you know, live by the word, obey the word. I said, no, no, you don't see what I'm seeing. If these people will begin to obey God's word, they're going to, I mean, truly obey God's word, they're going to stand out like a sore thumb. 
And that's going to be a testimony. And then in the midst of all of that that they're living in, God begins to bless them in an incredible way that's unmistakable, that that is God's blessing, that is something supernatural. What a testimony that's going to be to the whole world and Israel. And the practical things of cleanliness, the practical things of obeying the Shabbat, of giving the land its rest, all of those practical things. I've told people in Africa so many times, my people are destroyed for a lack of money. And any of them that know anything about the word, well, no, he's wrong, no. I'm like, you're right, that's not what it says. It's a lack of knowledge. It doesn't matter if you're living in the poorest corner in the most remote area of the world. If you will turn to God and repent, He can come and heal your land. His arm is not short. And so I've been crying out for volunteers for a few years and they come and go and they don't materialize and they don't stick around. And now I'm starting to realize maybe what the Lord is doing is He's getting my head straight about what the Word really means and what discipleship really means. And maybe now he's going to bring some like-minded people who think the same way along, who want to volunteer, who want to maybe go and do some discipleship, who, you know, we need people who can do web work. We need, I don't, I do it all. I do it all, which now is like, I'm just like, it's life support. But I believe God's in this. I believe God wants to do a fantastic work through it. And, um, and I believe he's moving me to teach them, and they're going to be ripple effects. The minute that I go over there and tell them, this is what it really means to obey God's word. Other organizations are going to turn on me. People who've supported me in the past are going to turn on me. But you know what? That doesn't matter. I have to trust God. I have to obey his word and trust him that whatever he takes away needs to be taken away, and whatever he added is exactly what needs to be added. That's it, guys. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening.